0: Well, if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. And as you're turning there, I want to just give an introductory uh, note, part 1. And I think the only other introductory note is a part 2, but that'll come later. But as you're finding Luke chapter 5, verse 17... Uh, this starts where you may be surprised. You're like, wait a second, pastor's back. I thought for sure we'd be in Genesis. Unless, however, you read the newsletter, the email newsletter that Jesse puts together that shows kind of where we're going to be. So for the next five weeks, including today, we're going to be in the Gospels, looking at the words and works of Jesus uh, that show us in very clear form, Jesus is God, and that has ramifications for us. Now, if you're thinking, well, pastor, don't we talk about Jesus every Sunday? Yes, we do every single Sunday as a church, First Baptist Eastwood, our pastors, and those who preach realize that the fulfillment, the culmination of all of God's promises come through Jesus. That as we've looked at Genesis, the promised seed through Abraham, that is actually Jesus that is that promised seed. So we are wholeheartedly as a church and hopefully you as church members would agree with Jesus' very words at the end of Luke's gospel that he began to talk with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and starting with the prophets and all of the Psalms and all of these other things that Jesus was the Christ. And it was at that that they heard this teaching, this preaching from Jesus, and it was at that point that their hearts Burned within them. We proclaim Christ week in and week out. But if you're like me, and I think Derek would give an amen to this as well, that when we're in Jesus, or when we're in Genesis, that there's a lot more that takes place that you've got to unpack. And so in this series, we hope as pastors and as others who will get the opportunity to preach, to be able to uh, remove any type of hindrances or any type of work, but that we would just put Jesus on full display. So in my creativity, uh, our series is called Just Jesus. Words and works of Jesus that show that He was God, that would remind our hearts of these truths, that we would just put Jesus on display. So here's where we start. In Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. And if you would join me in standing in honor of the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17 On one of those days, while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and also from Jerusalem. And the Lord's power to heal was in him. Just then some men came, carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof. "'and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles "'into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. "'Seeing their faith, he said, "'Friend, your sins are forgiven.' "'Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, "'Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? "'Who can forgive sins but God alone?' "'But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, "'Why are you thinking this in your hearts?' Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded. And they were giving glory to God, and they were filled with awe and said, We have seen incredible things today. May the Lord receive honor in the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Introductory part two. It's been five weeks since I've been able to stand uh, in this pulpit, and so just want to... Give thanks to those who filled in, uh, to Josh and to Lucas and to Matthew and to um, Brad, and just so thankful for those faithful men who preached different styles from different texts, uh, but did so uh, faithfully. And so, what a what a joy it is to to have friends who are in this gospel ministry that I can trust on, uh, trust and rely on to do that. Uh, and what an even greater. Uh, grace it is, knowing that there are men within our congregation uh, that are trusted to teach and preach in this way. So I'm grateful uh, for the series and for you to be able to hear from others that perhaps you you haven't heard uh, preach before. So I'm looking forward to this time. It was, uh, just to be honest, it was a great time uh, for us to be away. That first weekend we got to experience church in a totally different setting uh, than we are used to. It was an all-black church uh, with a faithful pastor that he and his wife have just become uh, dear friends to us. And so we got to uh, attend worship with them in mid May. And I've got to tell you, I, I think there is a, a sense in which uh, there is something to be loved in that. I cannot tell you the last time that I was in a congregation with so much joy in Jesus as. Uh, this church there at Clinton Baptist Church in Clinton, Maryland. And I can't tell you uh, the last time that I've been at a church that uh, is as loud as Clinton Baptist Church there in Clinton, Maryland. And those things are, uh, in some senses, abnormal for us. We kind of think, we've got to be quiet. Even just a minute ago, I took Catherine back as she's mooing under the pew saying, baby, Derek is praying. You cannot moo during the prayer. You've got to be quiet. You've got to be reverent. But there was a sense of just this joy that overflowed uh, from this congregation that I think we should seek to mirror and in some ways, things that we've already talked about from the pulpit In other ways, we ought to pray that the Lord would make us less white. Now, before the, the cancel culture comes out and gets me, here's what I mean. We should pray that our congregation would not be as white as it is. That may not make it any better. We should pray that the Lord would bring African-American Uh, brothers and sisters, that he would bring uh, Asian American brothers and sisters, that he would bring uh, Middle Eastern brothers and sisters to our church because they're all here in our community. So I hope you join me in that prayer because it was such uh, a refreshing time for us to just be able to see the joy Uh, that they had. And so I hope that that's something that we will uh, embody and just be able to be so thankful as we go throughout our our days, go throughout our weeks, throughout our lives, that we would just be so joyful of the work that Jesus has done in us. Maybe maybe that's reflecting on what was I before I came to know Christ? What was my conduct like and what was the road uh, that I was walking down? Okay, let's explore that just a little bit. And in light of that, be able to see what has Christ done for me in plucking me off of that road, transforming me and placing me on a different road. Brothers and sisters and friends, if, if we take time to look and think about that, there ought to be no other thoughts in our minds other than joy. Good, a faithful and great God that his, just as we read in our uh, call to worship, that his steadfast love is better than life. So I pray that as we open up his word this morning, that those things would be true of us. And that perhaps if we're, uh, maybe we're even sitting there and we're like, I don't know, that seems really weird. I'd rather just be quiet. I'm joyful, but in my own way. Maybe our prayer should be for those, and sometimes that's me, I'd rather just be quiet. Maybe we ought to pray that the joy of Jesus would well up in our hearts so much that we can't do anything else other than just shout for joy. So those are my prayers as we continue in this work here at Eastwood, that we would be continually reminded with the joy of Jesus and that he would bring to this church a congregation that looks, talks, thinks more like the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven is not just white folks, but it's every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So let us pray to that end. And I'm grateful that those sentiments are not just from me, but I'm seeing heads nodded. I've heard prayers come forth of similar things. So let's pray for these things. As we're at the farmer's market, as we're doing these different things, uh, that the Lord would bring to us a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church, just like we see in Titus 2. Introductory part two, concluded. (laughs) So Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26, show us this narrative of how Jesus heals a paralytic. If we've gone through Sunday school and we've seen these different things, we've probably heard this story before, right? It's kind of hard to get past the reality that, yeah, these homies just dropped their boy in the middle of the house, Well, how'd they do it? They cut the roof. They cut the roof. And there was a commentary that, as I was reading, kind of made light of it and said, in that day, had it been tiles or thatch, it could have been easily removed to create a hole. Okay. (laughs) They cut a hole in the roof. They made a hole in the roof to get this friend before jesus but the point of this story is not necessarily that this man is healed or that his friends go to great lengths to see them uh, to see this man put before jesus what jesus says the main point is is that the scribes and the pharisees would know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins That's what Jesus says the main point of this story is, that all of these other uh, elements of this story point to that very fact, to affirm to the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. That when they ask the question, accusing him of blasphemy and saying, who can forgive sins but God? That's a great question. And as one author says, what they get wrong is not their assumption about God forgiving sin. What they get wrong is their assumption that Jesus is not God. So, brothers and sisters and friends, as we look at this text and as we look at this series, Just Jesus, there's this reality that we'll get at in subsequent times in more detail that it is just Jesus who can forgive sins. It is just Jesus who can make you cleansed. It is just Jesus who can bring you to the Father. It is just Jesus. Well, what about just Jesus? So if there ever were a time for the Sunday school answer of Jesus being the right answer, it's over the next five weeks. So if I ask a question and you say Jesus, you're automatically going to get some type of gold star. Because the reminder is that Jesus is the only way, that Jesus is God. I'll never forget, some of you have heard this story before. The very first time that I preached outside of my own local church here in Louisville, uh, I don't even know how long ago it would have been, probably five, six years at this point, point. and uh, just so you know, I'm, I'm wearing my Southern Seminary shirt because I feel like that will absolve me of the next couple of seconds, but Southern Seminary over the last... <laughs> Hundred years, since its inception, has has done or taught things that are not super popular, either by the culture or even throughout uh, Baptist life. So as I sit down in Sunday school before preaching from James about favoritism, this older gentleman comes and sits down next to me, and he just looks at me, and he says, so you're from Southern, huh? Yes, sir, I am. He's like, I don't think I believe everything that they teach there. And remember, there are 6,500 students both on campus and online at the time. There are 100 plus faculty members. A lot of things being taught in different ways. So I just responded and said, hey, me too. Thinking I gained some credibility there. He responded with what shook my understanding of how I was assuming thoughts and understandings in people who I'm preaching to. And he responded and said, I just can't believe that Jesus is God. Friends, if your questioning if Jesus is God, you're not a Christian. And we need to talk. Friends, if you're online and you are questioning if Jesus is God, you're not a Christian and let me tell you about Jesus. That is one of if not the most central realities of Christian doctrine that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. It is a a pivotal doctrine that if you don't get that sorted out, you can't really go anywhere else. You shouldn't go to the Lord's Supper and baptism before you figure out who Jesus is. You can't go to the church until you realize who Jesus is. So in this text, we see these Pharisees and teachers of the law Trying to figure out who is this Jesus. And for quick context, Luke in chapter 2, we've read this story time and time again of Jesus' birth. There, uh, we'll probably do it again as Advent comes around once more. But Luke is beginning to give this reminder of who this Jesus is. And then Jesus himself in chapter 4 kind of unveils the curtain even more. Chapter 4, verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, he then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Verse 21, he began by saying to them, today... As you listen to this scripture, or today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. If somebody gets up into a pulpit, if somebody gets onto a YouTube channel, if someone gets onto your social media feed and starts to say some of these things, get them off of those things cancel them on YouTube, unfollow them on Facebook or Twitter, or whatever those social media channels are. They are a liar. But of Jesus, when he puts down the scroll and says, today in your hearing, this prophecy has been fulfilled. Jesus is taking on himself the authority that only God can take. In that sense, He's not taking anything. That authority is His. Because it is the Father who anoints Him with the Spirit. And so, Jesus has already begun to unfold this authority. So as He gets into this narrative, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are are coming from everywhere. They're coming from Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem to be able to hear Jesus. But not only to be able to hear him as if they want to follow him or that they were in awe of him, we see time and time again the motivations of these type of folk is that they wanted to catch Jesus. They wanted to catch Jesus in a blasphemy. And so here they are again following Jesus to hear him teaching. So this Specific teaching, this healing that happens of the paralyzed man, is for these teachers, for the scribes, for the Pharisees. But we see at the end of verse 17 that something particular, something even uh, more abnormal. It says, and the Lord's power to heal was in him. This is no contradiction to Jesus being equal in all deity to the Father. But many believe that this uh, power that's mentioned at the end of verse 17 is actually an extra, that that there is something specific, something special about this. Jesus, at any moment in time, as God, could heal who He chooses to heal. He could speak to uh, To the deaf and they would hear. He could heal the blind and they would see. Jesus as God has that authority. But in this specific moment, the Lord's power to heal was in him in a specific way. And as Jesus is teaching, there are so many that fill this house that these friends have to think of an alternate way to get their friend before Jesus. can't get through the door, can't get through the window. They've seen and heard of Jesus' miraculous hearings of uh, women and uh, removing uh, a demon from a man. We've, they've, they've heard all of these things and they say, we've gone to perhaps every type of miracle dealer and it's just not worked. Tom continues to be paralyzed and we don't know what to do. But this guy's doing something interesting here. We don't know if he's going to be able to do it, but we're going to take him here because if anybody can, he can. And so they take their friends to Jesus. They cut a hole in the roof and they lower him down. And at that moment, verse 20, that as Jesus sees the faith of their friends, he says, Friend to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. As one commentary says that in no way does the faith of one friend negate the sinfulness and unrighteousness of another friend, meaning you're not responsible for the salvation of another. God has never operated in that way, but how He has operated is that He has always chosen to use a mediator to provide for His people. Think of this. He used Abram to mediate for Lot, to rescue Lot. He used Moses to mediate for God's people at Sinai. He used Jesus to mediate perfectly on our behalf. Think of your own lives. Perhaps there is some or a person who you would say has even mediated on your behalf, meaning they have taken you before the Lord in prayers that you can't even number. Paul writes of things like this to Timothy, recognizing Timothy's mother and his grandmother, the faith that they had and the way in which they prayed for young Timothy. You cannot save your friend, but you can do just as these have done, by taking them to Jesus, by taking them to Jesus in prayer, by taking them to Jesus through his word, by taking them to Jesus through your personal proclamation of the gospel, and also by taking them to Jesus by inviting them to church that may seem so trivial. That may seem so counterintuitive. But if you were to look at the percentage of how many people go to church based on being invited versus not being invited, it's staggering. And you take even being invited versus not being invited, but when you say, hey, I'll come and pick you up, The numbers go even higher. There is something to be said when we take our friends to Jesus, when we put Jesus before them. So, seeing their faith, Jesus says, Friend, your sins are forgiven. That's a bold statement. But if you think about the things that we said as young children on the playground, and hopefully we've matured and grown up from saying some of those things, but perhaps maybe this would be a statement that we would have thrown around on the playground. Probably not, but let's flesh this out. You run around on the playground and you're playing and you're saying all of these different things, and all of a sudden you just want to say something crazy. And so you say, Your sins are forgiven. I was super Baptist and homeschooled, so it doesn't work. But who's going to be able to dispute that? Who can see sins being forgiven? It is... Not empirical. You can't go back and figure it out. It would be a claim without any understanding behind it. Without any foundation. It would be just blurting out some statement. But when Jesus says, friends, your sin are forgiven, there becomes this crazy thing that starts happening. Verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? I'm never going to side with the scribes and the Pharisees, but they've got a good point here. Again, we return to the fact that their assumptions about forgiving of sins and being God alone is correct. But their assumption of who Jesus is is wrong. But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, "Why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk?" Well, which is it? One can be proved in an instant and one you are left with debating forever. Until that person stands before the judgment seat of God, you won't see resolution to that. Now, let's go back to grade school, playground, recess time again. Your sins are forgiven. Not a big deal. No one can dispute it. They may call you a wacko. (laughs) And should. But if you tell the person with a wounded hand or with a broken ankle, be healed. Take off your cast. You're going to immediately figure out if that person is truly a wacko. There is no debating time. It's it's uh, it's, uh, it's yeah. It's just not not going to go well. If you don't have that authority and that power, which we don't, we don't have the authority to forgive sins. We don't have the authority to speak prophetically into uh, the things that we didn't create. Who can do that? God alone. So when Derek and I and our deacons hear of physical ailments going on throughout members of our church, we don't go and proclaim some word that we're bringing to them. No, we we beseech, we take them before God. We pray to God, God, you made them. You know whatever neurons are not firing. You know what ligaments are ailing. You know their physical state more than anybody. So God, we beseech you to do this because God made them. And it is because through God and his word alone that he upholds all of his creation. So when Jesus asks these Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk, the answer immediately is get up and walk can be empirically resolved in a moment. But here we get to the pivotal piece of this text. Verse 24, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is giving the ground to all of the rest of the narrative. Everything hinges on this Point the healing of the paralyzed man as a sign that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. So he told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher and go home. Now we don't know how brief or long that moment of Conflict would have lasted. We don't know if seconds went by or if it seemed like one of those ESPN documentaries where everything just goes into slow-mo and everyone's like, what did he just say? But we're told in verse 25 that the conflict is resolved and that when Jesus said, get up and walk, take your mat and go home immediately, he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Think of the emotions of the contributors of this narrative. If ever there were to be a criticism pointed at this text perhaps someone could say as they've said in other times well jesus wasn't really dead maybe they could say well this guy wasn't really paralyzed the guys who cut a hole in the roof and lowered him down on a stretcher would have been convinced that his physical state That he was, in fact, paralyzed. And think about the resolution that comes. Physically, he gets up. He gets up and this man goes home and he's glorifying God. The friends must be celebrating like crazy. Not only the friends, think of this individual, goes to Jesus, can't see him down in the dumps thinking, I'm never going to be healed. I'm not going to be able to get in front of him until all of a sudden he gets before Jesus. And the thing that Jesus prioritized isn't even his paralyzed state. Jesus, as one author says, is less, uh, less interested in our physical as he is our spiritual. That was the very first thing that Jesus said to this man, knowing that the worst thing about this man is not that he's paralyzed, but the fact that just like us, his worst attribute is he is a sinful man. And he, like all of us, needs his sins forgiven. And he, like us, if we have trusted in Christ, go to the one man who is able, the one who proclaims to us, friend, your sins are forgiven. So, as we are thinking about how to allow our hearts to well up in joy for what Jesus has done for us, let us not neglect the material things that Jesus has provided for us, but let us not stay there. There are time and time again reminders of God's goodness and faithfulness to me that I just reflect. God, that I get to live next door to my church, that's incredible. That it has a big backyard that I can go and watch my kids run and just enjoy seeing a deer walking. Like, this is just insane. God, you are so good. But if I stay there and I don't get to the fact that my sins have been forgiven. So friends, if your sins have truly been forgiven, don't let the joy that Christ provides to you stop at those material blessings. For that is what the crowd does. The crowd says, verse 26, that everyone was astounded and they were giving glory to God. And they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. One author summarizes in this way by saying that in many ways the crowd had seen the show. They'd eaten the popcorn, they'd seen this happen, They're like, wow, that was awesome. Did you see what he did over there? He healed that guy. Oh, yeah, and yep, yep, he forgave his sins too. But here's how one author says about the crowd. They watched Jesus forgive a man's sin. Then they watched Jesus prove prove that he could forgive sin by healing a paralyzed man. Those two thoughts in, in just comparison, that's incredible. That's the movie they watched. That is way better than anything you'll see at the box office. They watched him prove he could forgive sin by healing a paralyzed man, but not one of them then said to Jesus, since you can forgive sins, please forgive my sins too. Speaking of the crowd, this author goes on to say they experienced general amazement and gave general praise to God, but they did not worship Jesus or seek forgiveness for their sin that is both amazing and tragic having eyes they do not see having ears they do not hear what we've seen in this first series or this first sermon from our just Jesus series is remarkable That the person and work of Jesus in His earthly ministry to forgive sins and to heal paralyzed folks, that's incredible. But may we not walk out of here today thinking, wow, He healed a paralyzed person. Wow, He provided for him in this ultimate of way. No, He provided for him in forgiveness of sins. And friend, if you've not trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, may you not go home today in general awe and amazement. Wow, we saw really good things today. Let me give him a golf clap. But may you know that your sins are like scarlet. That your sin, both by birth and by decision and even by indecision. Your sin keeps you from a holy and blameless God. That what you need most is not being healed of your physical ailment. What you need most is not for some sense of financial burdens to be lifted. What you need most is not a new vehicle to remove stress. What you need most is not even for anything else you can think of. What you need most is for the forgiveness of your sins. And so you're either here this morning who has trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, or you sit here and you are sitting in your sin alone. And friend, let me take you to Jesus. That there is no sin that he cannot forgive. That in this, Jesus hasn't gone to the cross atoning for and forgiving all sin. But Jesus, in His perfect, sinless nature, has authority to forgive sins. And friend, the atonement that we see set up throughout Scripture of gruesome, blood-bearing animals has been fulfilled, finally, in the blood of Jesus. That His perfect, sinless blood is that which covers that while your skin or while your sin is like scarlet, they will be made white as snow. As Matthew shared last week, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friend, you can come to Jesus this morning, Perhaps bearing physical ailments. Perhaps bearing the weight of different burdens of life. But perhaps, more importantly, you come bearing your sin. I've got good news. Because Jesus, the one with authority to forgive sins, will tell you, if you confess your sins, friend, your sins are forgiven. Just Jesus can say this. Just Jesus can say this with the authority for that statement to be true. So friend, if you have yet to trust in Christ, to give Him your sin, to ask Him to make you clean, go to Jesus this morning. For it is so sweet. It is so sweet to trust in this Jesus. Let's pray.